0: It's Tuesday, June 23rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Both NASCAR and federal authorities are investigating the placement of a noose inside the garage stall of Bubba Wallace at Talladega Speedway, Alabama. Wallace was just recently successful in getting NASCAR to ban the Confederate flag at all its tracks and facilities and the only black driver at NASCAR. Jerry Brewer, sports columnist at the Washington Post, joins us for more on what happened and how NASCAR has responded. Next, Arizona is reopening, coronavirus cases are rising, and masks continue to cause a divide. After pressure from public health officials, Governor Doug Ducey is allowing local authorities to mandate the use of masks, a call they previously could not make, and many have chosen to do so. But now there's a debate whether Arizonans will comply with the order. Alicia Caldwell, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the continued fight over wearing face masks. Finally, President Trump had his first rally in Tulsa on Saturday and nothing went according to plan. Turnout was low after he touted over a million people signing up. And while he did attack Joe Biden, it was overshadowed by calling coronavirus the Kung flu and saying he wanted to slow down coronavirus testing. Alex Eisenstadt, reporter at Politico, joins us for more on Trump's rally. It's News Without the Noise. Let's dive in.
1: All of NASCAR's drivers have rallied around Bubba Wallace. The NASCAR Cup Series, lone black driver. The drivers and their crews, the entire garage area, has rallied around Bubba Wallace and the number 43 today.
0: Joining us now is Jerry Brewer, sports columnist at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Jerry.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Wanted to talk about a, a really horrible situation that happened at NASCAR over the weekend on Sunday. There was a noose found in the garage stall of Bubble Wallace at Talladega Speedway in Alabama. Wallace is NASCAR's only full-time black driver right now. He's also the one that pushed NASCAR to ban the Confederate flag. I know the NASCAR has launched an investigation now. The Justice Department and FBI are also launching investigations. Jerry, tell us a little bit more about what we know about what happened.
2: We don't know a whole lot. We just know that this noose uh, was found and and NASCAR actually announced the news. They sent a statement detailing uh, what had happened and, and condemning the incident and promising that when they figure out who did it, they would eliminate them from the sport. That was the word specifically, eliminate. And then since then, we've seen how the investigation has been broadened beyond NASCAR into the FBI. There is a sense that because access to the racetrack, the infields and all that is so limited right now that it has to be some kind of an inside job, whether, you know, not necessarily a rival member of a track team, but someone who is employed by NASCAR and that kind of services that area. So I think that is particularly disturbing for NASCAR leadership and NASCAR officials. And if you take a step back, NASCAR has really intensified, you know, really over decades, but especially over the past decade, its effort to broaden its reach and diversity and inclusion is a huge part of that. And this works against the entire movement of NASCAR. And when they get to the bottom of this, whatever happened, they're going to be particularly harsh to whoever did it.
0: The whole event there was a whole scene. There was people that were lining up in trucks. Flying Confederate flags. There was a plane that flew over that said DEFA NASCAR and had a Confederate flag as well. So, you know, people there just really trying to make it known that they were not happy with the banning of the flag there.
2: There's a culture war going on there. And I think that for a lot of NASCAR's core fan base, there is a significant portion of their fan base that this is just a radical change for them. This is not a part of the culture of NASCAR that they're used to. And they would say things like it's uh, gone to PC or too corporate. I think the other side would say that they're finally getting serious about human rights and just abolishing uh, symbols. And that's kind of at the core of all of this.
0: You mentioned also how this is a really important moment in sports because of the lack of sports that is going on. I mean, NASCAR is really one of the only things that are actively going and They have to have the right response to this. They've been transparent with this. They are launching an investigation, but it's important for NASCAR to do right by this also.
2: You want to get as much of this sentiment out of your sport as possible. And I think we all would be incredibly naive to think that this is just one or two bad apples. And we don't want to be as extreme to say that it's highly prevalent. I mean, I've heard from a lot of people today in and around the sport or or used to be connected to the sport that are just upset because this is not their culture, but they understand that you never fully get rid of racism. So this is a moment in which they have to show that NASCAR wants to stand on the right side of human rights in this movement. I would say on the right side of history, this is about the worst thing that could happen to that sport at this time. And They really got to come together and get it right and really come together and and show that this redneck perception of the sport is false. You know, this is an incredibly negative moment. How they react to it could make it even worse or it could make it just, you know, a resounding statement about the inclusivity of the sport. And so they need everyone, starting with some of their billionaire owners of some of these teams, to really step forward in a way that we're not used to them stepping forward.
0: Jerry Brewer, sports columnist at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having
1: me. We are going to change and update guidance so that local governments can implement mask and face covering policies and determine enforcement. Joining
0: us now is Alicia Caldwell, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Alicia. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about face masks as the country is reopening. Wearing a face mask has quickly become a very dividing line for a lot of people, just people in their everyday lives and then businesses, especially (laughs) there's some businesses that want to make a point. You don't have to wear a face mask. There's others that say, you know, it's mandatory. And Arizona is an interesting case because they are one of the states that are seeing an uptick in cases, but they also had some weird rules surrounding face masks. Basically, uh, cities and counties couldn't mandate on their own that people had to wear them. They had to follow state rules, which there were none in place. And just recently, the governor there said that cities and counties can impose those rules now. Uh, Alicia, help us out with a story. What's going on in Arizona?
3: So things came to a head last week as more cities and counties pressed the governor here, Governor Ducey, to allow local control or mandate something statewide With the backdrop of sky-high infection numbers, sky-high hospitalizations across the state, the governor said, hey, we're seeing data on the ground that tells us that we need a localized approach, and gave that authority to cities and counties. And there was a wave across the state. Every major city here has now mandated masks. At the same time, the governor said, he was updating the rules for businesses and required businesses to have their staff in masks. So that means at restaurants, all your servers are wearing masks. Social distancing is now a requirement as opposed to a guideline, which it was before. It was an encouragement before. And he's repeated his encouragement that people around the state wear masks. He says it's a matter of personal responsibility to do that. And he's tweeted a couple of times the hashtag mask up AZ, but stop short of a statewide mandate saying, you know, there are parts of the state, rural parts, that there's really not a high infection rate, so we'll leave it to them. And there are parts of the state that do have significant issues, including here in Maricopa County in the Phoenix area and in Tucson, counties along the border were experiencing significant upticks as well. So again, the majority, is my understanding, of cities and counties are now, at least of cities are now mandating masks. And then the counties, some have gone to it, some have not. So it's a little bit of a hodgepodge reaction in that sense. But overall, the majority of of Arizona residents now are required to wear masks while out in public in enclosed places. There's no requirement, of course, if you're out taking a hike or in your swimming pool, that sort of thing, to wear a mask. But crowded places, public spaces, indoor places in particular.
0: You spoke to a few business owners about this, and they themselves were like, we have about 80 to 85 percent conservative clientele here. And it really just kind of displayed this political divide with this whole thing for these business owners. What was their reasoning for not wanting to enforce or not wanting to require masks?
3: So I think you're referring to Larry Wentz, owner of the Buffalo Chip Saloon and Steakhouse in Cave Creek, which is just north of the city of Phoenix. Cave Creek initially opted not to mandate masks within their city. But the county, of course, Maricopa County, superseded that and said, everybody in the county. So Mr. Went. His approach is he will abide by the county's rules. There are signs all over the seven-acre property instructing folks that they do need to wear a mask and highlighting when those masks don't need to be worn, when you're eating and drinking, if you have a health condition or a religious objection is one of the exemptions here in Arizona. His approach is we're following the rules. We're telling people to wear them. The staff will all wear them. He personally does not. I spoke to him yesterday during a church service that's held on his property out on the back patio. And he says, you know, at this stage, if, if he hasn't gotten it, he may get it and there's not much he can do to stop it. He acknowledges that that is his take. Many of his customers, you know, 80, 85% are politically conservative and he's gotten pushback over some of the new rules, including social distancing. They've got a thirty-six square foot rule per person, so they've limited their capacity of how many folks can be there. You know, on a typical Friday night, pre COVID, they would see four thousand people. They've got live bull riding wow. and, and other events. Since reopening in mid May, they're getting about a thousand people on those Friday night events. Other businesses have taken the opposite approach. There's a small brewery in Phoenix called Renhouse Brewing Company. They closed early to in-store service at their tap room, early meaning before the state mandated it and went to curbside and pickup only. But from the very beginning, one of their co-founders said they required masks, both of their employees and folks who were coming in to pick up. I've heard you know, a couple of people say they object or they've gotten a an errant Yelp review here and there after posting about it on social media. But Drew Poole, what the co-founder, said he feels masks are a no-brainer to stop the spread and avoid what everybody wants to avoid, which is a second shutdown.
0: That's the interesting part that I know these limits on capacity at restaurants and some of these places is very tough for a lot of Places they want to get back to normal the way they were before. You know you want to make the same amount of money and you need a large amount of people in there to meet that. But on the other side of it too, you know it's kind of a slow ramp up to get back to normal and see how things go. So it is a tough situation for business owners on both sides. And it's not just in Arizona. You made mention of Texas and Nebraska, which is also dealing with some of these similar types of issues. So much so in Nebraska was interesting that the governor was saying that he would withhold federal <laughs> coronavirus aid from counties that did mandate masks in the state. I mean, that's just kind of weird.
3: Everybody's got a different approach. You know, Arizona's got a very independent streak. It's very libertarian. They've historically voted Republican, by and large, you know, at the state level, and certainly in presidential elections, I believe the last time voters here voted to elect a Democratic president, President Bill Clinton. Prior to that, it was Franklin Roosevelt. So that tells you the time span. But Arizona's now a battleground state. You know, you've got a Democratic U.S. senator, a sitting Republican U.S. senator as well who's facing a tough challenge from a Democrat. And you're starting to see the purpleness of Arizona come out. And it's viewed by everyone at this stage as a battleground state. And you're seeing those battleground lines being drawn. Again, some folks here I talked to said it's a matter, one, of personal liberty. If they are sick or if their doctor recommends a treatment, including a mask, they'll abide. But the City Council of Phoenix that's not made up of doctors, and certainly they're not their personal physician. So no, they don't feel like they have the authority. And others have said this is also a concern about their health, that they have concerns about whether wearing a mask will impact their health negatively. There's not science that I've read in any volume that suggests that there are health issues related to masks, but certainly a lot of people have that firm belief. And they also, again, come down to a personal liberty issue and they simply object to being told how to comport themselves outdoors or in public in this environment. Elisa
0: Caldwell, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. All right, thank you.
1: Without question, has more names than any disease in history... I can name Kung Flu. I can name
0: 19 different versions of names. Joining us now is Alex Eisenstadt, reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Thank you. I wanted to talk about the president's Oklahoma rally. It was meant to be this turning point for the president to kind of transition into the re-election campaign again after all the shutdowns that happened because of coronavirus but not everything went according to plan. There was a low turnout, there was a lot of tangents that the president was taking. It looked kind of like a mess. Alex, tell us a little bit more about what happened for the president's rally.
1: This was an event that was supposed to be like you said, a real turning point for the campaign. Trump has been going through the worst couple of weeks of his presidency and they were really going to use it to turn the focus finally away from Trump towards Joe Biden. But just about everything went wrong. There's been a lot of focus on the crowd size, how they failed to fill the arena, which sort of created bad optics. But there were also a couple other issues. You know, they were going to spend a lot of time going after Biden. Instead, Trump overshadowed that with comments like talking about coronaviruses kung flu, saying that he had tried to slow down testing. And the other issue is is that it kind of raised questions about how they're going to hold rallies going on into the future. And rallies are, are they're an integral part of how the president reaches out to his supporters, and if he's not able to fill arenas, how are they going to be able to hold live events like this going on into the future?
0: What happened with the planning of this event? Because we had heard the president and a few others saying, you know, over a million people registered to attend. That's setting expectations really high, and then obviously we saw the turnout was not there. I think there's about 62 to 6,500 people that were there. So what happened in the planning? Because uh, according to some of your reporting, aides were already reading the tea leaves and already knew that they weren't going to get a big turnout.
1: They had said that they had over a million people sign up for this event. They then said that they estimated that about 300,000 of those were fakes. They were fraudulent, not real people. From there, they estimated that about 200,000 people lived within actual driving distance of this event. And then they kind of estimated that worst case scenario, they would have 60,000 people at this event. That was far too high, it ended up. So, you know, you talk to people on the campaign and they'll tell you that different things went wrong. Perhaps it was because protesters scared off people from attending. Perhaps it was because of the ongoing concerns about coronavirus, which had been trumpeted. And, and the idea that this was somehow kind of a risky event to hold. And then finally, there was the revelation that happened the same day that basically a half dozen Trump staffers who are advanced staffers for that event had tested positive for coronavirus. So that may have stoked day of fears that this was somehow a, a dangerous event for people to attend.
0: Obviously, we mentioned that this was supposed to be the president's mode to turn on to Biden and start attacking him there. And he also wrote that he's been struggling with how to take him on, unsure of how to do it. Why do you think that is?
1: There's no clear line of attack right now against Biden. You go back and you look at 2016, and Trump was very clear in how he went after Hillary Clinton. Biden is turning out to be more difficult. You've seen Trump go after Biden on a lot of different issues, whether it's his mental faculties, whether it's his relationship with China, and then uh, just a host of other issues. You saw him tagging him at the rally as being too far left. What's not clear, though, is what of this is actually going to stick. And so you have a situation now where The election is shaping up to be a referendum solely on the Trump presidency. And for the president to win, his advisors know that he needs to turn this into a choice between him and and Biden. And that means they're going to need to find some way to go after the former vice president. But they haven't found a way yet that really sticks.
0: Looking forward now, what are they going to do for the next few rallies and whatnot? I know a lot of the blame was getting directed towards campaign manager Brad Parscale The president obviously derails himself when he starts going on on these crazy tangents, as you were uh, saying, describing the coronavirus as the Kung flu, when he was talking about his water drinking abilities and ramp walking abilities. Those things tend to take away despite some of the best planning. So what do we make of that?
1: This has always been Trump's big issue, which is that his advisors in his campaign and the people who work for him in the White House can come up with the best laid plans possible. But ultimately, he's the messenger in chief, and he's the guy who decides what the daily messages is is going to be. It's up to him. He's the captain here. And so this is going to be the question. Can he find his rhythm on this race? Can he find the way to go after Biden in a way that gains traction? But it just doesn't seem like that's happened yet.
0: Alex Eisenstadt, reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.